Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to have Jennifer Boykin join me on the show today. The first thing I should tell you is that Jennifer cracks me up. She's smart, sassy, and soulful all at once, and sometimes that's a really rare combination to find in people. But aside from that, Jennifer is the creative visionary and chief rabble-rouser behind the midlife reinvention movement, Life After After Tampons. And she speaks, teaches, and writes about women who rise. We'll talk more about that as we go along. She is a frequent contributor at major internet sites and blogs regularly for the Huffington Post, as well as many others. You can find her work at lifeaftertampons.com, where she happily makes trouble for a living. And by the way, I am saying tampons, as in the feminine hygiene product that you buy from the store, so you can tell that this is going to be a fun call. Jennifer, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. Thank you, Charlie. I'm delighted to be here. Good. We're already laughing. This is going to be fun. Uh, Alrighty. So before we dive in, give us a quick background of how you got here um, with Laugh at the Tampons. What led you to starting this movement? Yeah, well, nobody, um, thank you, nobody grows up to like create a movement or be an inspirational speaker. I think just stuff happens to you along the way. In my case, it started more than 20 years ago with the death of a child, actually, which was a terrible thing. But when I get sad, I get angry. And when I get angry, I get busy. And I started doing a couple little workshops on healing from loss. And one thing led to another. And I was being flown across the country and blah, blah, blah. And everything I did this little tiny bit toward my dream, I got scared and I'd quit for five or eight years. So 20 years later, I found out I couldn't wait any longer. Really, life after tampons should have been mothers who want other shit too. <laughs> but I waited so long, we had to age up a whole, a whole uh, generation. So you had to wait 20 years before, you know, before you can actually do it and get the stuff you want, right? It's ironic that I speak, teach, and write about busting through fear, and it was fear that kept me from launching for 20 years. Yeah, so let's talk about that fear, because I think some of your fears were definitely from just you being a creative giant, right? And, and all those types of things that come up. And Jennifer was one of the people that, um, by the way, as I started using Creative Giant more, she was um, really one of those catalytic people that was like, you know what, like, She's one of the people I'm talking to. So, by the way, Jennifer, I didn't know if you ever knew that, but there you go. I didn't. Thank you. I remember you made me cry when you told me I was one. <laughs> uh, see, see, there, there's a part of my life where I just make people cry. <laughs> Weeping. Weeping. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I, part of it is just the natural challenge, challenges of a creative giant. But I think there's this definitely this mom element that popped up this mom and woman element that popped up that that made this waiting for 20 years like some a, a different type of thing so talk to us a little bit about that well as it turns out it's not such a bad thing because the women that are in my wheelhouse all have a similar problem as well. And so I can speak authentically to that pain of knowing that you have something great in you, but being afraid to claim it. Part of it is the social conditioning of motherhood is that that's supposed to be enough for you. And for me, the dirty little secret was that motherhood was also always necessary to my happiness, but not sufficient. And when you have small children, you aren't really allowed to say that it's taboo. But I was thinking it the whole time. 
And so I did the near beer of happiness for a while. I went back to graduate school because that's another mistake women make. We think we aren't ready, that we need more training. So we take ourselves out even further financially and with years outside of what our real dream is until we're ready to claim it. So the good news is now that when I work with my clients on this problem, I definitely have strategies and I de- definitely can empathize. They know that I'm, I'm uh, walking the talk with them. Yeah, so the thing about it is, is it's really easy after one starts, you know, making changes in their life for people to be like, Jennifer, you just don't understand. Charlie, you just right. don't understand, right? It works for you, but you just don't understand my situation. Um, and I think that's really one of those things where we give up our personal responsibility to make different choices and things like that. So, you know, what was the, what was the litmus point or the catalytic point for you when you're like, you know what, I, I can't continue to defer my life for, for, you know, ever now? Well, it was just a kind of harmonic convergence of some timing. I had been remarried for a couple of years. My husband had heard me speak and um, it was, you know, like I do with my audiences. They are laughing, they're crying, they're laughing. It's this wonderful energetic roller coaster that happens. And he's sitting there, my great book, six foot four Italian husband, crying in the front row with everyone else. And when he left, he's like, you know, I, I knew I loved you before we went in there, but I didn't know you could do that. And that began some conversations where I confessed that this was always my dream was to do this. And it worked out that he was retiring in a few years. And so what we did was I left my my paycheck, paycheck work, and started my company with the idea that in three years he would retire and then my company would be leading the way. And that's actually what happened. We just had our three-year anniversary on February 1st. You don't talk a lot in your audience like directly about motherhood and that that type of thing like the ins and outs of motherhood right no i don't because i think women lose themselves in that and we hide behind that relationship um and there's lots of mommy blogs and lots of mommy speakers and lots of places you can go to talk about poopy diapers and macaroni and cheese recipes but at my site the one rule as a matter of fact is that we don't talk about our loved ones because we don't hide behind that we claim the powerful story that is uniquely ours the dream that is just ours aside from everyone else in our lives in the past when conversations like that have come up with me being a guy obviously talking to moms there's been obviously the charlie you just don't understand thing that comes up right you don't understand what it's like to be a mother right and but i think there's a lot of resistance to actually claiming that individual dream that you know that that room that every person needs not just every woman but every person needs to to have their own so why is it so particularly challenging for moms Well, I can't speak for all moms. I think part of it is the socialization. But for me, when I hear you just don't understand, that completely chaps my butt because there's not much (laughs) that you can talk about that I wouldn't understand. Now, just because you have a uterus doesn't mean you don't have a part in the conversation on what makes women valuable resources to their society. And just for me, we just don't hide behind that. You know, if if motherhood is your thing and that's all you wanted out of life and you've done that, then bless you. I think that's really super. I really, really, really do. 
But for me, it always felt like um, I didn't want to live through my children's lives and I didn't want to hide behind them. And I didn't want them to have the pressure of my whole life being about how they did or didn't do in theirs. Their lives are none of my business. I'm just here to keep them alive and raise them with good character so they can go out and do the best that they, they can do themselves. And we're almost at the end of that journey. And I think what happens to a lot of women is they spend so much lo- time and energy devoting to family, which is wonderful, that when they finally come up for air and have some time, money, and space, they don't have the first clue about what they want to create. And so a lot of women find me then. Why are women so afraid of being the crone? Well, I don't know. I can only speak for myself. You know, <laughs> I, I yes. What are some of the challenges? The way I can, I can say, I can see that you're going to say you're always going to speak for yourself, which is great. I'm glad that you do that. Well, you know, the word crone, cronyism comes from the word crone. And so it doesn't have a really great depiction in our culture like it did um, when you study matriarchal societies, for example. And the word hag, haggard, comes from the word hag. I don't know. I think hags can be really hot myself. All the women I work with are. So, so you work with the hot hags is what I'm understanding. <laughs> it's an inside job. It's, it's an inside job. Is that what it is? But I, I think, I mean, when we get away from the linguistic area, right? So we could think in terms of, you know, maiden, matron, and matriarch. And I think there's some resistance to stepping into that matriarch stage, which actually can be a quite powerful stage, you know, of, of a woman's journey, right? Um, but there seems to be a lot of resistance to it. Well, let's be fair. There is, it's not like our culture uh, creates a soft landing spot for women when they get there. You know, I was um, joking with our friend Jonathan Fields last time I was speaking with him at one of his events. And we were talking about, you know, for women over a certain age, there's really only two choices out there for you. You get to have sensible shoes and you get vaginal lubricant. And that's all there is to sell to a woman over 45. And for me, life after tampons is about your third choice. I'm insisting that every woman that wants something besides those two things for herself gets to have it. And if she needs resources, she's going to find them on my site and in the community that we've, we've built together. I'm reminded of the, the story of, um, you're probably going to stab me in the eye for this one, Jennifer, but um, <laughs> when, when you noticed that you had some, some whiskers pop up, um, like out of the blue and how... Oh, it was those mutton chops. <laughs> when we were down, oh my God. See, that's part of the problem too. It's like when you're transitioning from maid to mother, you know, you go to the fifth grade movie and you find out all this stuff that's going to happen to your body and all that's wonderful. Well, nobody tells you anything about what happens on the other end. And so for those of you listening in, Charlie and I were at Mexico at a event that that we were both attending. And I looked in the mirror and there was all this like peach fuzz on my face. <laughs> So I called those my menopausal mutton chops. But. The menopausal mutton chops. But, you know, we, we laugh about it. But I think, it, seriously, though, I mean, the yeah. the lack of having a soft landing spot goes back there. Like, what what does one do when that happens, right? And I think the great thing about it is, aside from humor, which humor is great, I don't know that many other sites, you know, that are talking about this transition um, in the way that you're doing with Life After Tampons, which is one of the reasons I wanted it on the show, you know? There's nobody talking about it. And um, that creates a wonderful opportunity for me and my community because there's an awful lot of women who are looking for that sense of community. One of the things that 
is really painful to women before they find my site is this sense of isolation that we are the mothers who wanted more or we're the irreverent group of women and you know we don't want to go quietly into the still dark night so let's talk about getting started with life after tampons because you know not the easiest sort of movement to start like what were some of the initial challenges there well when I graduated from college, fax machines hadn't even been invented. <laughs> so <laughs> the biggest challenge has been how do I get up to speed on technology and what's possible out there so that I can give my my community the very best delivery of products and services. And so staying current with that has been a challenge. Now that the company's been successful and all, I have people that I have a team now that help me with stuff like that. But in the beginning, I would get up at 530 every morning and go to my job job and where I was in charge of branding and social media. And I'd set up my own website, my own Twitter account and Facebook just so that I didn't damage theirs. And I would practice every morning for two hours before work. So you mean you can have an online business without being a 30 something? (laughs) Well, I'm managing to do it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's one of those things that I think when we look at the the rising sort of, um, what do I want to say here? We're living longer and we're actually getting to the point to where we can be productive members of society far longer than we used to. And so I think, you know, as the boomers reach a certain age, there's going to be this sort of second act that needs to pop up. Right. Or not needs to. But they're like, you know what? I worked the first 30 years of my life. There's this whole other 30 years that I can be doing something awesome. But I think what I've what I've encountered a lot is people not seeing that. Like, Yeah, it might be challenging to catch up on, you know, this technology, but it's not an obstacle. Like and if you were 30, you would have an obstacle. Right. There's always going to be an obstacle somewhere. Right. Well, I think there's not only a second act. I think there's going to be a third one. And I think that that's where the longevity is taking us. And the people who will thrive and the people who will triumph are just like how it's always worked is the ones who will adapt. Sweet. There's going to be a third act. That means... Save your retirement. (laughs) I'm saving my retirement. No, I'm like, woo, sweet. What am I going to do with a whole other third career? You know, I'm still thinking about the second career. But anyways, um, yeah, when we think about that, that, there's this... The funny thing about life after tampons right now in in the context that we're talking about is, yes, you know, maybe 100 years ago, um, it might not have been much life after tampons. Well, really, there weren't tampons then, so that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, um, after raising kids, there wasn't much life left over. Um, Yeah, you were dead. You were dead. Um, Now there's a good 30, 40 years. What do you do with yourself, right? How does one redefine themselves? And so let's talk about redefinition and reinvention because you talk a lot about that. Um, not to necessarily go into like a super how-to space, but what are some things that women who are reaching sort of this stage of life can, can think about to help them reinvent and move forward? Well, one of the commonalities that we also find among the men, women in my community is that we have a deep yearning for a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And that hits up against this blank spot of not knowing what we want. There's a real panic with that and a sense of urgency because what happens is we get frozen in place. We're afraid to pick because we're afraid to pick incorrectly. And the reason we're afraid to pick incorrectly is that we sense the reality that there's more years behind us than in front in front of us. And we don't think we have that many do-overs left. 
But that thought process, that mindset is exactly opposite of what will take you to that beautiful place of discovery. Because what takes you there is a sense of experimentation and then adapting as you go along. Life After Tampons wasn't my first brand when I started this in the coffee shop at 5.30 in the morning. It was actually my sixth my sixth idea for a business. And I kept launching and trying and then and experimenting and saying, well, I like this from this piece and I like this from this piece and I like this from this piece until it all came together and converged into this one. So if I had waited for a fully formed idea, I'd still be in the coffee shop noodling around. I mean, nobody comes up with life after tampons. Nobody indeed. But let, let's go back though, because you were like a first class flautist here, right? Like this, like this whole idea of failing was not a natural thing. No, I, well, everyone fails, but I guess I never think of myself as failing because what I, what I'm committed to is lifelong learning. So you can't be a lifelong learner without accepting that there's stuff that you don't know. I mean, that's part of the definition. So I am a flutist. I've been playing for 41 years, and now I work that into my craft on stage. And it's really super awesome. Yeah, so I'm glad you reframed the failing thing, right? Because other people would have said, they would have taken the gambit and said, you know what, you failed in five business ideas before landing on um, Life After Tampons, as opposed to like, you know, you, you had five really good learning experiments. We all get to decide how we look at things. And I don't know what what it is about our culture that seems to believe, especially in the younger years, that you can bitch slap your way into success. So I could have framed it that way, but that doesn't serve me and it doesn't serve my people because it doesn't allow me to thrive. But if I can say instead, well, when I when I started out with 50 chicks, I thought I was going to interview 50 women over 50 and find out what they had in common. And I did one interview and I was bored out of my socks. So I knew that didn't work. And so then I went over, I called a focus group and, and they came over and they said, you know, the thing about you, Jen, is you're kind of soulful, but you're really fun too. And like charm bracelets are really in. So let's do something with charm bracelets. (laughs) That's how we got plucky charmed. I'm not lying, but plucky charmed was the funnest one ever, but you couldn't, people couldn't remember it. It's like Lucky Charms, but with a P and it's past tense and it was, you know, and so it had the right spirit and it had the right energy, but it didn't have, it didn't have staying power. Life after tampons has staying power. There's nobody that sees that and doesn't ask the question, what the hell? What the hell indeed. Um, So we mentioned one of the things of of, of reinvention. Let's keep mining that little, um, you know, let's keep tapping that vein right there. Okay. So one thing is, is to have the right mindset and have a spirit of adventure and experiment with, and see, see everything as small risks instead of big things. Another thing too, is that to combine your urge for meaning and purpose, which is about serving others with what your great loves are. I happen to be a really gifted flute player, but it's not my great love. And so I could have made the mistake because the whole world thinks that's heard me play thinks, well, you should go play your flute and do this and that and and followed, you know, a midlife career as a classical musician. But it's not what I wanted to do. Instead, I take the piece of that that I love, which is the part about being on stage. And I bring that to my audiences instead. So look through your past for things that 
you're really good at, but you don't necessarily love and see if there isn't a component of that that you can't bring forward with you. Yeah, that's a callback to episode one with Pam and Body of Work. So if you've um, been following along, or maybe if you haven't, maybe go back to episode one, listen to Pam and Body of Work, because she talks a lot about that too, is that there's these pieces that we can always carry forward. Well, people unhelpfully ask the question, well, what did you want to do when you were a kid? Well, virtually no woman wants to do the things she thought she wanted to do when she was a kid. And the reason is because we've changed. Life has changed us. And it's not that we don't know what we want that's the problem. The real problem is we don't know who we've become. So in addition to the mindset of breaking it down into small wins and looking for the pieces of the past, make it your business to know yourself. Get really true and honest about what's acceptable for you and what's no longer acceptable and learn to match your energy and reciprocal relationships that feed you and not deplete you. And if you just start with those small things, eventually you find your way. Eventually you find your way. So part of finding that way may include negotiating and or redefining relationships. Sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit about those challenges because that's, that's going to come up along the journey. It is. And we have to teach people how we want to be treated. You mean they don't just, they shouldn't just know? (laughs) Well, um, most people are too busy thinking about themselves to be reading my mind. And, um, the same thing for me, we're all pretty self-centered as far as that goes. And most people will appreciate it if you let them know what it is that you need and be really honest about that. Um, One of the things that I think we need to step away from is manipulating people into giving us what we want and need. Um, It's not just that it's not fair. It's that it leaves kind of an oogie wash, an oogie feeling on your own soul. So we just learn to be more direct. And learning to be direct can be challenging because it may be, you know, as we've talked along, you don't know who you've become and it may be one of the first times you've actually expressed your needs in a direct way. And so that's a practice, folks. That's just a practice. And here's a hint. Always lead with your fear. So if my fear in like when I get up, the last recital I did, for example, there's 300 people sitting there and I'm coming out, you know, trying not to trip over my gown and everything. And of course, the thing, main thing I'm worried about is how I look. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, you like my dress? What do you think? You know, and it did a little turn. I always lead with the biggest fear. Or so I might say something like, thank God I didn't fall down the steps on that one. And they'll go, ha, 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 ha. And that puts me in a place of being a human being with them too. And once the thing that I'm fear, I fear is out of the way, what can you do to me? Nothing. As a matter of fact, one of the gifts of being a woman who rises from tragedy and having survived the second worst thing that can happen to you in life is that there isn't a lot of fear left. It's all kind of false. Yeah, you've kind of seen that and seen how deep it can go. And, you know, we talk a lot in our society or not, not people talk a lot, but we sometimes joke about first world problems. But sometimes you go through some real tragedies and you recognize that there really are a lot of problems that aren't really as deep as we might think they are. 
Well, they feel that way because they're ours. So, and they all are ours. So we don't want to just negate the truth of how we feel about things either. Because that's another thing women in particular are encouraged to deny their own pain because we're supposed to go, well, tut, tut, there, there, little, you know, young thing. You know, it could be a lot worse. Well, okay, it could be a lot worse. But I think what we want to do is kind of live in both the macro and the micro world where we see perspective, but then we do our own work and face our own fears and not pretend like they aren't there just, or that we're not, they aren't worthy fears because they aren't the worst thing that could happen to you in life. They're still yours. And if we pretend like they aren't there, then they're right there between us and the dream. They have to be dealt, dealt with. Great take. I mean, and it's, I'm glad you, you went there because it's not that like I'm saying first world problems aren't real problems to the people that have them. But when you've experienced, and when you've experienced a range of truly tragic things, it helps you look at the other things that have happened in your life and put them in some type of context. Right. But if you've done your work, because you either get bitter or you get better. And that's a decision that every grieving person has to make along the way. Along the way. Let's talk about that. Because I think in some ways, um, it's... I won't say that going to get bitter is a natural pathway for people, um, but it is a pathway. So in cases like that, and I know you, you've done a lot with grief and, and you know different things like that, um, aside from what we've talked about, are there any particular things that you can notice like when you start getting bitter um, that you can do to pivot and change that? I think the hardest thing is to give up the attention you get from being a grieving person. Um, and... The other thing too, like in the case, I can remember the day I decided to get better after Grace died. And my fear was that if I wasn't still seen as the grieving mother, that it would be like she didn't exist. Because in our case, she died on the day she was born. She was a preemie. Nobody knew her except through me as a grieving person. And I remember I had this friend, this older gentleman named Don. He was so wise. And when I shared that with him, he said, Jennifer, don't you understand Grace's eternity is that you are changed from forever. And from this moment forward, every life you touch, everyone you meet will be changed because your life has been touched by grace. Grace lives on, Jennifer, through you. And I saw that I could make a greater impact in the world by being the healthy mother of a child who died, by learning as much as I could about loss and women who rise and teaching that instead, because it's really uh, not a skill set that we admire. And we're all proud of people who rise. We all want to be around them, but nobody wants to talk about the hard work of getting there. But we have to, because every loss, every gain has a loss in it. You get promoted, you lose the comfort of the place that you were before. And, the, you know, and so you have a new set of fears. Every you get married and you and you lose your freedom of going anywhere you want anytime you want you know every gain comes with a loss and so it, we would be better served to teach this duality but the one thing that definitely connects all the women at my site is that we are women who rise we're irreverent and we're fun and we're full of sass but we aren't going to be kept down and there's this just this quiet elegant determination among my women. It just makes me so proud to be their leader. And I, I just can't really even 
believe that we've built this community that we have. It's just mind-blowing to me. When you originally started, I remember you having some tension about how to talk about grace as far as publicly and how that was used. But you seem to be much more comfortable about that now. Well, it comes up a lot. Um, Is it just frequency or is there some some inner work that you did about that? You know, I don't know if I did inner work or not. It it comes up for me every now and then. I mean, next week uh, is her birthday, as a matter of fact. There's her 23rd birthday. And um, one of the things that we do, um, and I can share with the audience, um, is like, how do you get past things, is that we have a celebration of her life every year on her birthday. It's called Family Gratitude Day. And uh, nobody goes to work or school that day. We just remember grace and then we celebrate the family that that God left us with. And so this year, all three of my stinky back-talking boys and I are going to New York and playing for the weekend. And that's how we're celebrating their sister's life. The stinky back-talking Nippalicious crew. (laughs) Yes. For those of you who don't know about Nippaliciousness, I have this very casual husband who used to like to eat dinner at the table without shirts on. But that is definitely a no-no here at our house. We don't have nippaliciousness. <laughs> okay, so what's next for Jennifer in life after tampons? Oh my gosh, I am so excited. Um, I'm creating this new program for uh, my women that is going to be launching in about a month or so called Priority You. And it's a complete step-by-step comeback methodology. So for women who are stuck and frozen, it takes you from that spot all the way through to identifying your legacy and putting that into play. And it's just killer. It's completely what I was born to do. And so I'm excited about that. Fantastic. Well, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Hmm. Unanticipated challenges. Gosh, I can't think of any unanticipated. I can think of lots of anticipated. You know, our business has grown, and you know this from the book that you wrote. I'm definitely not in, I'm definitely at a more mature stage of the business. And so the unanticipated part is really about me being stretched um, and learning how to adapt um, for the current needs of my business, whatever they might be. I have to be willing to be teachable, and I'm so earnestly devoted to that. So I look to people like you and others to show me the way. Cool. Okay. If people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away? Live your one beautiful life like you mean it. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jennifer. This has been a fantastic conversation. It's a blast as always. Thank you for having me, Charlie. Okay, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Jennifer. Take your one meaningful life, or beautiful life is actually what she said, and live it like you mean it. That's a great message that we'll end on. So how are you going to do that today? What changes are you going to make? And how are you going to do that for the rest of the week? Get to it. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.